the next two weeks, I'm really excited about, and it might even stretch to three, but it's probably going to be two weeks. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that this works the way I foresee it working. If not, I'm, I'm hopeful God will intervene and make it better. But the, the goal for the next two to three weeks is to deal with Christian music. And so what we're going to be doing is starting with basically biblical worship and, and music and what we know about music in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at it through the synagogue practices and, and the temple music that the Jews had. We're going to look at what the church did in the early church. And we're going to probably try to bring it up through uh, uh, at least Charles Wesley, which is our excuse for dealing with it now. Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, wrote five to 6,000 plus hymns in his life. And the interesting part is, is he didn't start writing them until he was, I think, in his late 20s or early 30s. And so, I mean, this guy was like pumping them out like nobody's business. A bunch of hymns that we still sing today. But we will be looking at this. We've got, uh, uh, I've, I've uh, managed to secure uh, much to Alan and, and Danny Ways and a few others' joy, I'm sure, because I was going to make them sing some of these songs. But I've managed to secure some good recordings of what most historian, music historians believe are pretty accurate renditions of what music would have sounded like at the time of Christ and in the early church. And once we hit Gregorian chants, we've got a pretty good idea because we still sing many of the early Gregorian chants. And then we have musical notation starting in about the 1100s. So we have a good idea of what the music would have sounded like then. But it's going to be very, hopefully, interesting, very edifying, and a wonderful time where we'll actually have a little different brand of worship other than just the prayer and the, the, the sharing that we do typically in this class on a Sunday morning. So if you have an interest, it would also be a wonderful opportunity if you know someone who would be interested in something like that, be they churched individuals or non-churched individuals. It'd be a great opportunity to bring them because while we'll plug into what we've been studying, these will be classes that fit good as an entity within themselves. So it's a great chance to bring visitors and guests, and I'd urge you to do it. I don't think I can legally hand out CDs of the recordings. I'm still checking into that. If I can, I'll try and get everybody a CD of some of these songs so that we've got them. If I cannot, uh, then, uh, uh, sorry. Now, <clears throat> with that, <laughs> let's begin this morning, please. This is our third and final week, God willing, on John Wesley. Uh, uh, and so as we look at John Wesley and the Methodist Church, I want to start out with a little quiz for everybody, okay? This is your quiz. Question number one. Kathleen Hauser, you being a big politico, I expect you to get this right, okay? What do these people have in common? President George Bush? Senator Hillary Clinton? <laughs> Gary said not much. That's wrong. They're both politicians. They both lived in the same house on Pennsylvania Avenue in D.C. And Senator John Edwards. What do they all have in common? They're all Methodists. Okay, y'all did pretty good. All right. Huh? No, Bill's a Baptist. It's a mixed marriage. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Next issue. What building is this? 
John Wesley Methodist Church. It's it's a, a, a mile from here, isn't it? About a mile on Bermuda Dunes. Okay, that's it's no coincidence. They have John Wesley there. He started with a few other guys, the Methodist Church. So uh, you'll find a lot of Methodist churches named after him in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Now, we've looked at John Wesley with uh, aspects of his life. We, that was week one, the parts that made him who he was. Then week two, we looked at John Wesley, the good, the bad, and the ugly. This week, we'll focus on John Wesley and his role in the Methodist church. And that's our goal. In May of 1689... British Parliament passed what they called the Act of Toleration. Until the Act of Toleration, you were Church of England or you were in trouble. You were not allowed to be any other church in England. King or queen, the monarch was over the church since Henry VIII. And the church at that point declared its independence from Rome. The monarch is over the church there in England. And you, if you are a British citizen, are required to go to church. You get fined if you don't go to church. There are 39 articles of faith you're required to agree with. And if you don't, it's not just, gee, they're a bad person. It's, you're a traitor. You're not a good citizen. Because the king or the monarch was seen as a God-given ruler who was head of the church and the expression of God on earth, if you will. And so you were expected out of obedience to the monarchy, which was an obedience to God, to belong to the church of the kingdom, which was the church of England. Now, in 1689, Parliament passed a law that said, basically, you can go to a dissenting church. You can be someone who won't agree with all 39 articles of faith of the Anglican church and can form your own church and you have freedom to worship within these boundaries. Here were the boundaries. You can dissent. That's what it was called. These are dissenting churches. You could dissent from the Church of England. Now, I have the picture of the thumbs down and holding the nose because this was not something to be proud of if you were a dissenter. I mean, this was the kind of law that was passed very begrudgingly. It's kind of like, okay, if you want to be a stinker, you can. But here are the rules. Number one, you have to have a meeting house that's registered with the government. In other words, the place where you worship has to register as a a dissenting, not a church, a dissenting meeting house. Number two, the preacher has to be licensed and approved by the government. Has to go on file and be licensed and approved. Number three, you have to hold your services in the registered house. You can't hold your services in in people's homes. None of this home Bible study. You can't hold the services uh, uh, any place except within the registered house if you're a dissenting church. And number four, you cannot be a member of a dissenting church. You can't be a dissenter, as they call them, if you hold public office or military office. You cannot be a dissenter if you're a university student. 
You cannot be a dissenter and vote for parliament or anything else in local elections. You lose many rights of citizenship if you choose to be a dissenter instead of someone who goes to the governmental or state authorized church. Okay? One last provision here. Doesn't apply to Catholics or Unitarians. Still illegal to be a Catholic. Still illegal to be a Unitarian. Unitarians had... We, we didn't go into this in this class, but they had... had uh, um, Unitarians kind of come and go. Okay? They're like the tide, historically. There was a big tide of Unitarians. Unitarians, by definition, means one God, no trinity within one God. In other words, God the Father, Jesus is not God, Holy Spirit is not God. And God the Father doesn't have to be God the Father. It can just be this general idea of a wonderful peachy keen entity out there somewhere. That's more modern than it is ancient. But this ancient view of, of Unitarianism had come back into vogue in the 15 and 1600s as people started repelling from the idea that Jesus was God. And so there's just this one God, but there's no Jesus, there's no Holy Spirit as deity, as God, as worthy of worship. And so this new in vogue, or old in vogue, religion was also pronounced still illegal within England. So as long as you're not Catholic, as long as you're not Unitarian, you could file as a dissenter, but this is what you had to do. Now this came at a time out of necessity there in England because... The, the church itself was, was, had suffered. It was tarnished. Um, I thought about this yesterday when I noticed, um, uh, I don't know if you all keep hearing me. They've given me this new mic that's driving me nutso up here. It's okay? Okay. Well, if I fall off the stage, we're going to blame the mic. Okay? The, uh, uh, I read yesterday... Um, that Tammy Faye Baker Mesner died. And reading about her death, uh, I read through the, the short history of her life with Jim Baker, the PTL, were they PTL, uh, the Heritage Park, uh, the fraud, um, the imprisonment that Jim Baker went through, the, the tryst he had with the church secretary, just everything and and how in the mid 80s they were in their heyday and how things really seemed to have fallen apart and i can remember when that stuff was going when the 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 fall was happening to them uh, i can remember having some friends come up to me and saying that's the problem with religion that's the underbelly you rarely see but it's there and I said to my friends, no, I don't think that's true. I think that's the underbelly that's there for some. That underbelly is, I mean, there's not a perfect church. There's not a perfect Christian, save our Lord Jesus. But, and, and so there's always going to be some underbelly. But, but don't think that all churches and all religion is like that. And, 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 and when I see some things on, on TV or I read some things about people who hold themselves out as the church, sometimes I cringe. Because I don't want people to affiliate my understanding of God with what someone else is proclaiming it to be. Am I alone in that? Okay. 
Um, well, in the 1600s in England, people grabbed hold of the idea that they were Puritans, that they were, were um, this uh, Protestant rebirth, and used it as an excuse to execute the King of England, King Charles, and used it as an excuse to run politically the country of England for over a decade with, the, uh, with what's called the Long Parliament. And Oliver Cromwell ran the parliament, and, and upon his death, the people kind of said, enough, this is wrong, this, you know, we're still in shock that we actually cut off the head of the king of England. And so they took King Charles's son, King Charles II, and, and, and reestablished the monarchy. But as a result of that, the people in England viewed this bad activity, this political mess the manipulations, the power plays, they viewed it as sort of uh, something that the religious people were doing, the Christians. And so the common population and some of the thought leaders kind of rebelled from faith. And it was a time of great lawlessness. It was a time where people needed to hear the sermon that was preached this morning. Because their attitude of all of the people was, if that's faith, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Good works... Heavens, no, those are the good works that killed the king. People use this moniker of Christianity to take control of government, to dictate what we do with our lives. It's a big power play for self-enrichment, either in money or in power. It's not a legitimate exercise of faith. And with that view came a deterioration of the morals and of the faith and of the practice of the people within the, the British Empire, Great Britain at least, uh, England, France, and I mean England, Ireland, and Scotland. There had been a similar occurrence over in the mainland of Europe. And the results in the mainland of Europe would have different ramifications. Ultimately, you're going to have a revolution in France. In Germany, you have the rise of, of the pietist movement. But in England, what you have is God coming in and starting revival. And it's really a thrilling time to read about in British church history because you read about the lawlessness, you read about the sin, you read about the immorality, you read about the rampant disregard for Christianity. And at that time, God steps in and He raises up leaders and says, we're going to turn this thing around. And revival starts sweeping not just across Europe, but it starts sweeping across England. Now, the problem is in England, until the dissenting act or, or the act of toleration in 1689, you can't have dissenting churches. You've got this main church. How on earth, when you've got a structure in place that's not one that's really close to revival, how are you going to bring revival to those people? What's going to be the mechanism? Here's what the British did. They started what they called religious societies. Clubs. Instead of like a rotary, they'd have a religious society. They could build their own building. Wasn't a church, wasn't a denomination, did not hold services at the same time as the church services. But it would be, an, and it wasn't apart from the Church of England, but it wasn't part of the Church of England. It was just a religious society. It was a club. It was a club where faith could be taught. 
and the Bible could be taught. And through these clubs, revival starts sweeping across England. It starts cleaning it up, cleaning up the morality. The Methodist church itself really starts as a holy club. That's what they called it. They being John and Charles Wesley and a few others. They're at Oxford. Charles, the younger brother, is a student. John is a tutor or a teacher. He's gone back to Oxford to teach. And they started this holy club. And they would meet three or four times a week. And there was just a handful of them, five to ten. They'd meet three or four times a week. They'd set up ministries to do. They'd go to the prisons and they'd visit uh, prisoners. They'd help people who were sick. They'd take their money and give to people. They'd eat meals. They had a, a, an accountability structure within it where they'd come together and they'd speak about how they were doing spiritually and where they were falling down and where they were. And, and this was a, a very tight-knit club. Now, John Wesley within this club was very methodical. Methodical. There was a method to what he was doing. He'd come up with checklists. He would keep a journal of activities of how he's doing. And he would say, once a week we need to do this. Twice a week we need to do that. Here are the books you must read. Here are the books you must not read. And he set up a method for these folks to grow in holiness. And that's why, probably not politely, some people started calling them Methodists. Hey, those Methodists, they got their method there in place. Wesley loved the term. He embraced it. He said, you bet. We got a method here for growing closer to God and for doing what you ought to be doing. And he starts using it. We're Methodists. We believe there's a method. And so he starts this holy club with a handful of men. And the growth over his lifetime is phenomenal. From the time John Wesley starts with his brother Charles and a few others, these Methodists, till the time John Wesley dies... The growth snowballs from five to 130,000 plus. Revival comes sweep. Now understand, these are holy clubs, right? The Methodists. You'd think it's like, we have a pretty good open door policy here. You want to come, you know, you come to our meeting class, our, 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 our class to learn about the church. You become a member, whatever. Um, <clears throat> once you're in, you're in pretty good shape here unless like you do something really gross and bad, I guess. But I don't know what, because, I mean, it's not the kind of thing to talk about. Uh-uh, not with Wesley. I mean, he'd have these regular audits at his holy club. And if you weren't cutting the, the grade right, he'd kick you out. And they, they'd kick out preachers, they'd kick out members, they'd have wholesale cleanings. And they still, after all of that, had over 130,000 left. It was fascinating how he did it. And the way he did it, the way God did it, through him, is this guy was um, type A, workaholic, preachaholic. Uh, some might say, that he lost balance as a result with his family. Um, some might say that he didn't, uh, he, he didn't live that balanced life that's so hard to get a hold of for all of us. But I want to give you a typical day for Wesley. Typical Wesley day. 
Typical. Now, you say, well, at what stage of his life? I'm talking typical. I'm talking from the time the guy starts the Holy Club till he, he dies at age 87. I mean, he's 87. Uh, who's doing what? Well, hello. Okay. I do not like this thing. John Wesley functioned without one of these for 87 years. <laughs> That's true. Okay. For this is a typical day for his whole life. I mean, he's 87. He's out there preaching, riding a horse, going to meetings. My grandmother's 87, Mom. She's 90 almost. She'll be 90 in a couple. I don't see her riding a horse. I'm sorry. I love her to death. I just don't see that. He's 87. He's riding horseback, going to preach. Not once or twice. He's, here's his typical day. Here's a Sunday I pulled out of his journal. On random, I pulled this out of his journal. I didn't say, let me find the busiest Sunday. So No, I did the Wesley approach to Scripture. I just kind of, bam. Okay? And I put it in our lesson. I put it a whole week in the lesson. I just pulled Sunday out for you. At 5 a.m. is the time that they'd start their services. He he has his favorite time to preach. At 5 a.m., he preaches to 5,000 people who show up on the Pharisee and the publican. 5,000. Thousand. Now this is a Sunday, so he won't preach during church times because he urges everybody to go to church. This is extra. This is, hey guys, I've got a really good class plan next Sunday. We'll get Stephen or Lewis or someone to unlock the doors. Let's meet here at five. We can probably get the auditorium. We'll fill it up for a great Sunday school class on music. And I'll be here alone. I know Becky would come and my mom would come. Catherine might. But that's about it. Lewis would say, here are the keys. <laughs> He's got 5,000 there. Noonish. Then after that, they go to church. Noonish, he preaches to another 3,000 in another town, hour up the road, on horseback. Different sermon. 5 p.m., he preaches to 5,000 more in another place on Christ, our wisdom. Unless we ruin the day, 8 p.m., he's in London at a society, at a religious club building, preaching on Christ and his cleansing blood. And this is every day. This isn't, okay, well, what'd you do the next day? I mean, day in, day out, day in, day out. He'll preach three or four times a day. This guy preached over 800 times a year. That means he's averaging over twice a day, every day. And he does it not one year, but year after year after year after year. Decade after decade after decade after decade. He does this for over 50 years. Here's a, here's a Wesley event. This is in Wesley's words. He says, I preached, and then after he preached, he called upon God to confirm his word. Immediately, one that stood by cried aloud with the utmost vehemence, <laughs> even in the agonies of death. But we continued in prayer till a new song was put in her mouth, a thanksgiving unto our God. I think that's out of Psalm 40. Soon after, two other persons were... Um, 
seized. Seized with strong pain. He was a very bad speller. Seized with strong pain. And constrained to roar for the disquietness of their heart. But it was not long before they likewise burst forth into praise to God their Savior. And people were responding. They were responding with, with tears, with shouts, with cries. And, 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 and it's interesting how he would do this. Uh, um, yeah, he, Wesley, the method behind the man, okay? He had a checklist of rules. At one point he had to change them. And another time he tweaks them here and tweaks them there. But I pulled out one of his tweaks. Here's his checklist to live by. Number one, I'm going to speak openly and without reserve, he says. And this man, if he's got a problem with what you're doing, he would look you straight in the eye and openly and plainly without reserve, he would tell you. This was the man who got in trouble for standing up in his father's pulpit when his father let him preach and preached the sermon on forgiveness and then ended it by saying, if you want an example of what not to do, don't do like my dad is with my sister. Because it's the most unchristian behavior I've ever seen and it doesn't befit a man of the cloth. Okay? And when his dad's upset, he says, but father, I was speaking the truth in love. As the scriptures say. Okay? He would speak plainly and openly without reserve. He's serious. No joking. And the way he writes, it's kind of funny. It's kind of like, I'm not going to laugh on purpose. Recognizing there are some times where something occurs or happens where you spontaneously laugh before you can check it. But, I mean, this is his list. I'm going to be serious, no levity, no laughter. And he still gets like 5,000 to show up for sermons. Speak only to God's glory. If I'm, I'm not going to talk about the world and what's going on in the world or things of mundane matter. I'm not going to talk about clean laundry. I'm not going to talk about anything except what pertains to God's glory. By the way, I'm going to warn you now as we go through this. I think, based upon my perception of life, he was out of balance on this stuff. I'm not recommending this as, as what is normative Christian life. But I am letting you know where this man came from and what was going on. He said, number four, I'm going to only take pleasure in God's glory. If there's something else that... You know, he starts sleeping on the floor to avoid sleeping on a mattress. Because he wants to pleasure only in God's glory. I'm sitting there thinking. You know, maybe that's why you could ride a horse at 87. You know, you've got calluses all up and down your body from sleeping on the floor for 50 years. It's probably just as good on a horse. The guy was an amazing man who, out of commitment to God, lived an amazing life and brought God a lot of glory through the testimony of what he did. Now, there was another fella in the Holy Club. His name was George Whitfield. George Whitfield, spelled Whitefield, but pronounced Whitfield, an amazing guy. How am I doing time-wise? I got about 12 minutes. I got, oh. Psh. George Whitfield, an amazing guy. He, he, he gets up. First of all, he's, um, uh, his dad dies at a real early age. His mom raises him. He loves the theater. He had a penchant for theater. He'd have been a good actor. But he took uh, uh, the blessings and the skills that God had given him, and he took them on the road as a preacher. 
He and Wesley were good friends. They got along well. Uh, it was Whitfield who was the outdoor preacher, started preaching outdoors because he could get more people there, and talked Wesley into doing it. Whitfield and Wesley at some point split up in their fellowship with each other, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to tell you, when Wesley returned from America, Wesley had viewed his American experience as a failure in Georgia. Wesley told Whitfield, don't go there. It's not a great place to be, and it's, it's bad, bad news. Whitfield says, eh, I'm going anyway. And Whitfield goes to America, and, and as negative as it, the experience had been for Wesley, it was just as positive for Whitfield. Whitfield in America, he goes down to Georgia. He starts uh, uh, an orphanage there. The Bethesda Home for Boys is what it's called today the oldest orphanage still in existence in America. Whitfield uh, um, um, travels around the country. Jonathan Edwards, that Scott Ryling pre, uh, taught on in here, uh, uh, was uh, an acquaintance and a friend of Whitfield's while he was here. Whitfield goes up in uh, Philadelphia and becomes friends with Benjamin Franklin. I brought Benjamin Franklin's autobiography that Benjamin Franklin himself wrote before he died. I have a friend who doesn't like to read biographies because they all end the same way with the person dying. And so it was recommended they start reading autobiographies. Okay. I'm going to read you a few moments of what Benjamin Franklin had to say about this Methodist minister, Whitfield. Franklin writes the following. In 1739 arrived among us from Ireland. Eh, I guess maybe he hit Ireland on the way over, but he was from England. The Reverend Mr. Whitfield, who had made himself remarkable there as an itinerant preacher. He was at first permitted to preach in some of our churches. But the clergy, taking a dislike to him, soon refused him their pulpits and he was obliged to preach in the fields. The multitudes of all sects and denominations that attended his sermons were enormous. And it was a matter of speculation to me to observe the extraordinary influence of his oratory. Okay, Whitfield, he would sometimes act out biblical stories. I told you he had a flair for the drama. I mean, it wouldn't be, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. It'd be, and so the man comes walking down. I mean, he did this whole one-act play, you know, up there and, and uh, uh, had it. So Franklin says, I wanted to go hear him. He says, it was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as, as if the whole world were growing religious. So that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Mr. Whitfield, in leaving us, went preaching all the way through the colonies to Georgia. The sight of the miserable situation there in Georgia inspired the benevolent heart of Mr. Whitfield with the idea of building an orphan house there. Returning northward, he preached up this charity and made large collections for his eloquence had a wonderful power over the hearts and purses 
of the hearers. I did not disapprove of the design, but, and I'll edit here for a minute, Franklin says, you know, in Georgia, they didn't have good workers, and everybody was scruffy, and nobody knew what they were doing, and it was stupid to build this thing in Georgia. We could build it in Philadelphia and bring the orphans up to Philadelphia and have it built right. We just saved a paragraph there. He says, this I advised to Whitfield, but Whitfield was resolute in his first project. He rejected my counsel. I therefore refused to contribute. I happened soon after to attend one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with collection, and I silently resolved he should get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pieces of gold. As Whitfield proceeded to preach, I began to soften and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that, and I determined I'd give the silver dollars. (laughs) Then he finished so admirably, I emptied my pocket, wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. (laughs) At this sermon, there was also one of our club who, being of my sentiments regarding the building in Georgia, and suspecting a collection might be intended, had, by precaution, emptied his pockets before he came from home. Toward the conclusion of the discourse, however, he felt a strong desire to give and and applied to a neighbor who stood near him to borrow some money for that purpose. (laughs) The application was unfortunately made to perhaps the only man in the audience who had the firmness not to be affected by the preacher. His answer was, at another time, friend Hopkinson, I would lend to thee freely, but not now, for you seem to be out of your right senses." He goes on to say some of Mr. Whitfield's enemies said he was probably doing this money to enrich his own coffers. Franklin says, I looked at him. I watched this man. He was meticulously honest. He didn't keep any of this for himself. He truly put it all to good use and good purpose. He says, uh, uh, this is especially good coming from me because I never agreed with the guy from a religious perspective. So this is not one of his followers saying it. He says this, he had a loud and clear voice. He articulated his words and sentences so perfectly that he might have have been heard and understood at a great distance. And I'm going to pause out of time's sake, but he goes on for several pages. In fact, Franklin is so concerned at first when he reads that Whitfield is preaching to 10, 20,000 that Franklin shows up at one event and instead of listening to the sermon for content, listens for volume. And quietly, as unobtrusively as he can, starts pacing away to see how far he gets, how many paces, before he can't hear him anymore well enough to understand what he's saying. Then he does the math of a semicircle, computes the area, does two persons per, or one person per two square feet, and figures out he could speak to over 30,000 people. It's, the math's in there if you want to check it. Whitfield would preach extemporaneously, whereas every other preacher by and large read from notes. Whitfield would preach with a theatrical flair such that you take the well-known actor David Garrick. I wrote his name down because he's not so well-known today. But he played Richard III like supposedly no one else. David Garrick, a well-known actor in England, the, the, the Tom Cruise of his day, if you will, said, uh, I'd give a hundred guineas if 
sorry, not of, if I could say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. He said he could bring an audience to tears with his delivery of the word Mesopotamia. (laughs) Wesley and Whitfield fell out over the issue of predestination. Whitfield believed in predestination. Wesley did not. And Wesley, uh, uh, at at first, they would just let let sleeping dogmas lie. lie. Um, But given time, Wesley decided to preach a sermon on, uh, uh, on this subject, on why Whitfield was wrong and uh, unorthodox. And in fact, Wesley, you know, I told you last week when I was talking about some of the things that, that aren't so great about Wesley, Wesley was one of these pivotal guys who existed at a time where modern thinking was really coming into being. The way we think, the Enlightenment. We're going to cover this after the music classes, I hope. We're going to talk about Descartes and, and, and uh, Locke and other philosophers that are changing from a, a medieval and even Renaissance thought process to one that we would consider much more today. It's, it's the, the, the Enlightenment is what scholars call it. And, and Wesley's kind of in the middle there. And Wesley uses Scripture and thinks a lot like we do today, but he still had some of the superstitions of, and, and superstitious thought process that preceded modern thought. So, for example, when Wesley had to decide whether or not he was going to preach and publish against Whitfield and against this predestination view, do you know how he made his decision? He wrote the four different options on pieces of paper, dropped them in a hat, prayed over it, reached in and pulled out the piece that said, preach and pray. I mean, preach and publish. So that's why he decided God wanted him to preach and publish on it. And that's the way he, he, he would work through these things. Um, or not work through these things. So the, the two split apart, if you will. Wesley is actually really good at organization. When Wesley would teach and preach, he'd leave an organization structure in place. He had ministry teams. He had, he had the gift of administration. Not so Whitfield. He'd blow through town. He'd preach. He'd have a massive following. But then he'd leave. So, so the base of, of non-predestination Methodists is growing over time. While the volume of predestination Methodists is large, but over time it shrinks. And uh, eventually Wesley and, and Whitfield come back together through the efforts of some godly people. And, and that's a real encouraging part of the story. Now, Methodism post-Wesley and then we're points for home. First of all, Francis Asbury. He's a young fellow, 22, that Wesley sends over to the United States in about 1771 and says, get over there and preach. Asbury comes over, 1776, something pretty important happens here, five years later, remember? All right, so the war takes place. All of the Methodist preachers, and by and large all the Anglican preachers, who are accountable to the king of England, all leave America and go back to England when the war breaks out. Except for Asbury. Francis Asbury says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not leaving. This is my ministry field, and I'm here. And so he stays. He stays till he dies. And over the time he's there in America, the number of Methodists grow. In 1771, there are 1,200. When he dies in like 1817 or whatever, 
over 200,000 Methodists in this country. The Methodist Episcopal Church of the United States of America is what it was initially called. Now, the church itself starts dividing. Um, in the late 1700s, they're dividing over predestination, they're dividing over slavery, they're dividing over any number of different issues so that you've got different branches of the Methodist church coming out. And over history, we've still got a number of branches of the Methodist church today. You have the Wesleyan church. You still have uh, the Nazarenes come out of the Wesleyan or out of the Methodist movement. You have some of the brethren churches. You have a number of different churches that come out of this. But these churches all take, by and large, the social conscience that Wesley had of taking care of the poor and the indigent. And so you've got schools. You've got hospitals. We've got Methodist Hospital downtown. You've got uh, uh, many different denominations. You've got uh, schools. You've got SMU, Boston University. DePaul was originally a Methodist school. Um, uh, You've got Asbury Seminary. Named after Asbury, Francis Asbury. And you've got a huge Methodist presence uh, uh, in the United States of America as well as the world. Points for home. God seeks to be our Lord and teacher. I, I, you know, I can't throw rocks at Wesley for being out of balance because he's out of balance. The, if, if you're going to be out of balance, at least the guy's erring on the side of holiness as he sees it. You know, all the rest of me, I'm out of balance the other way. Uh, you know, I fear. I do know this, that God wants to be not just our teacher and Lord, but he wants to be our Lord and teacher. Here's the reason I draw a difference between the two. Jesus says in John 13, you call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so. I mean, that's true. That's what I am. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, and Jesus flips them. See the difference there? The apostles, whose feet he's washed, call him teacher, rabbi, and Lord. But he says, and he says, that's right. That's what I am. But he says, now I, your Lord and teacher. Put Lord first. This is what Pastor Fleming's talking about this morning. He seeks to be our Lord. His plans, our plans. Shouldn't be, Lord, here are my plans. Would you bless them? First, we need to say, Lord, what are your plans for me? Help me understand them. That's the first prayer. He's Lord and teacher. Second point. People do watch what we do. They do. Um, They see our faith by our deeds. Pastor Fleming this morning is talking in Ephesians. And, and, and he's talking about how the result of our salvation are good works. If you don't have good works, there's a problem with the salvation. Because just as naturally as an apple tree gives apples, a saved man or woman has good works as a result. It's just a fact. Now, it's not the good works that save us any more than then you, you could, if I, I've used this illustration with you before, I don't know a better one, but I'll use it again. If I want an apple tree, what do I have to do? Plant an apple tree. I can't plant an oak tree, go to Randall's, buy apples, and tape them on the branches. That doesn't make it an apple tree. That makes it an oak tree with apples taped on the branches. Okay? The good works, the fruit of the Christian life isn't what saves us. It's the tree of faith. 
But a tree of faith produces good fruit. And if there's not good fruit there, we do need to worry about what kind of tree we have. Does that make sense? Um, this is the James passage. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can that kind of faith? Uh, David did a great job this morning pointing out, can that kind of faith, just some mental belief, save him? No. It's, it's you know, one classic Protestant definition of faith is A-C-T, assent, conviction, and trust. And when you have assent, conviction, and trust, A-C-T, you act. Okay? Last point. Let's work for unity of the body of Christ. I, I'm very impressed that Jesus prays that all of us may be one. Brought to complete unity. I got an email from seven or eight of y'all about the Pope's comments. That there's one church, and if you're not in the Catholic Church, you're either estranged or not in the church at all and a lot of y'all said what do you think about that my response that i emailed most of you was i agree that there is one church paul says it i do not agree that it's the roman catholic church i i, I see it as god's spiritual kingdom of all saved people but god wants his people united and we work towards unity, not division. It's contrary to the fleshly nature of us that wants division to show that we're right and others are wrong. It helps us justify who we are and what we think and what we do. But if we're all saved by grace through faith, not by works, then none of us need to be boasting anyway. We need to find that salvation we all share and remember the bond of unity that it brings. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we do come before you through Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters. And we acknowledge what a wonderful, great God you are. How you love us in the midst of, of the, the ways we follow you, but also the ways we don't. How you'll leave the 99 to come bring us back home. How you yourself have prayed as Jesus on earth for unity for this body. So we echo that prayer, our Lord, and pray that we will do our part to show your love and conviction that we share, that we are one in Jesus Christ. Joined together, not because we figured it out right, but because we trust in the finished work that you've accomplished for us on Calvary. May we proclaim that to the unsaved world by what we say and what we do. Through Jesus we pray, amen.